Good afternoon. It's just after 3 p.m. in the afternoon, and you're listening to St. Andrew's Radio. My name's Leah, and I am the host of Ecoactivist Journeys. And today I have a guest with me in the studio, um, Sir Ian Boyd. Um, Sir Ian is the former Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department for Environment, Food and Agriculture Affairs. Uh, He also helped um, establish the Scottish Ocean Institute. And now he's back um, with us at the University of St Andrews and will head up the University of St Andrews' new um, Environmental Sustainability Board. Um, If you're a student here, you probably have already heard from the principals, send out a few emails around it. And um, yeah, um, Sir Ian, welcome. Um, to my radio show, thank you for coming today. It's a pleasure. Um, yeah, thank you for um, coming to tell us a little bit more about the board and about yourself as well. But yeah, to start off, would you mind sharing a bit about yourself and um, how you maybe came to discover your mission within environmental work? Oh, well, that that goes back a very long way. <laughs> I've been around a long time. And um, I suppose it goes back to uh, when I was when I was really a schoolboy and... Um, um, my 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 father was always very involved in particularly environmental conservation. He was actually a conservationist, and he ran the uh, the, the organisation that um, uh, manages nature reserves in Scotland, um, and was the director of that organisation. Uh, and throughout my childhood, I was exposed to all sorts of um, things which um, I suppose shaped me for the future and so it was never in any doubt in my mind what I would do with my uh, my my life and my career. Um, I wanted to be a scientist, I wanted to be a natural scientist and I wanted to study biology and, us- and mostly um, uh, sort of uh, ecological problems um, and that took me on a very long circuitous route to where I am <laughs> now. Um, but uh, fundamentally, I, I founded that in in academic research, uh, which is where I was. I, I had most of my interest, and I, I didn't spend a lot of my time actually studying uh, conservation from an academic perspective. I studied a lot of the fundamentals of uh, of biology, um, and I did that in the context of what I would call scale-free complex processes. So so I was interested in everything from hormone dynamics through to the dynamics of large-scale ecosystems. And that took me to the Antarctic, um, and it took me to studying whales and seals and seabirds, uh, big ocean, ocean um, issues which have conservation concerns, and that included fisheries and those sorts of things. And that was the sort of circuitous route that, uh, that took me to working with people in policy and government. Yeah, it's quite interesting that you, because you obviously started a lot with research and with academic work, and then obviously I assume that must have been also quite a different transition to decide to go into into policies and more into politics as well. Yes, it, it, it was, although I felt for me personally, and everybody has in a pers- different personal mm. journey here, that it was a natural transition. Uh, you know, I'd spent quite a lot of my career studying quite academic things actually where it was it was often a little difficult to see well you know well what does that really mean for people um but gradually you know i i got just pulled into um trying to answer questions that were of relevance to 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 people and that was mainly in ocean conservation and it was mainly in fisheries and how to manage the oceans better, uh, particularly how to manage the sustainability of fisheries. Um, And and that that was a very good um, 
basis for which, from which to start to understand the, di the dynamic relationship between the, the social sphere, if you like, and the natural science sphere, because in fisheries that had been worked through uh, over many, many decades. Uh, and there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of good things had happened, but there was still a lot of work to be done there. Yeah, so um, maybe you might, would you mind quickly explaining, because when you got involved with um, working at DEFRA, how, how, like, what did your work entail and, like, how, I don't know, how did you... So, so what does yeah. I, I suppose what you're asking is what does a chief scientific advisor yeah. to the UK government on food and environment do? Yes. Um, well, uh, my job um, um, broke down into four parts really. Um, one part was an inward-facing um, part, which was when I say inward-facing, it was mean part being part of the management of the organisation. So, so Defra as an organisation had about twenty-five thousand staff, still does. Um, uh, and I was part of the senior management team, so I sat on the executive committee and I had responsibility for, uh, not direct line management responsibility, but responsibility for making sure that all the science evidence analysis across that very large and really quite complex organisation was organised appropriately. And we had about 5,000 scientists and engineers working mm. in DEFRA who looked to me as the head of profession, so I had a leadership role. Um, and a lot of that inward looking was about organizational structures. It's about understanding how big organizations work or don't work, as the case mm. often often is, uh, and how to, from a very senior position, how to manage um, an organization. Um, so that was the inward-facing mm. role. And then the outward-facing role was about how DEFRA spoke to the rest of the world about the science that it was interested in. Um, and that, that included the academic community that I, I came from and I still had a foot in because I was still uh, one day a week here at the University of St Andrews, at least notionally. Um, but it was, it's about, about addressing the big scientific questions that, that, that DEFRA was interested in, in answering. And uh, let's face it, you know, when you're dealing with food, environment, uh, you're dealing with some of the biggest issues facing people on the planet. And some of the most interesting scientific questions uh, developed from that. And my job was to try and get academics enthused about those questions so that they would spend their time um, uh, trying to answer them. Uh, these are some of the most intelligent uh, people that we have. Uh, and what I wanted to do was to inspire them to, to work on the problems that, that DEFRA had. And we all know what those sorts of problems are. It's about climate change, mm. it's about resource use and those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, just from an interest perspective as well, um, would you say it was, because obviously there's a lot of scientific community, but then it's not always that easy translating what the science say to the politics and telling politicians, you know, this is what you need to do. Did you find that it was so, difficult? So absolutely. And so, so that actually takes me to the third area because mm -hmm. that's actually about advice. So, so... You know, I have had certain inward facing, outward facing functions, but I also had to provide advice. And that was advice uh, uh, often directly to senior ministers, cabinet ministers, uh, but also to senior colleagues uh, and junior colleagues within the organization. Um, and uh, a lot of that was very blunt and very one-to-one. -one. Uh, it was often about building personal relationships. Sometimes it was, you know, 
written advice. Uh, you know, I would sometimes get a note from the Secretary of State saying, you know, I've just heard this, what's your advice on it? And I kind of write him a quick note about it. Um, sometimes it was much more formal and sometimes it was constructed in the form of large-scale reports. So I produced a report on uh, waste and resources, for example, in the UK, which formed the basis for the UK's resource and waste strategy. Um, and I produced another report on the future of the seas um, and, and a number of other things which, which informed environmental policy and strategy. Uh, and we'll still be doing that through the transition to exiting the EU and the creation of, of new um, legisl legislative um, uh, frameworks. Um, so, so that advice element is is very important. There is a fourth area, though, where where which which uh, uh, scientists like me are very involved in, and with the coronavirus, you can see where that sits, and it's an emergency response. Mm. Uh, so, you know, my 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 successor won't be very involved in the coronavirus because that's being dealt with by the medical people, um, but I was very involved, for example, with. Um, uh, the Novichok problems at Salisbury, the, 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 the release of um, uh, nerve agent there, because I carried the responsibility basically for cleaning up the, the mess that was created. Uh, and so that took a whole year of, uh, of um, quite uh, intensive activity to make sure that Salisbury was actually safe for people, all parts of Salisbury were safe for people to, to move into. And so that kind of response... Um, to, to, to problems is something that um, we exercise and practice the whole time. So the coronavirus um, issue is a very serious problem, but it is one that I think people should realise that people like myself in government are actually uh, practising the whole time and uh, so we kind of know what to do when it actually happens. Mm. So would you say with, for example, last year when um, the UK government and Scottish government declared climate emergency, there was also sort of a change within the narrative of how things within policy are being responded to? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that that's the case. Um, I, I think that the, the, the diff... The, things, things are shifting, mm. but I think the, the, the biggest problem is does the rhetoric match the actual change in policy mm. and it's one thing for politicians to agree with our, um, you know a particular line that is being taken uh, in in environmental activism for example um, or at least agree publicly it's another thing for them to actually then take that and translate that into into real policies that are going to make a big difference and that's where the that's where the real challenge sits um, because some of the policies that are needed in order to really respond to uh, what, we, what we could call a climate emergency are, are really very significant and for the vast majority of people uh, they would probably see them as unacceptable. And if you're a politician, mm. you are very challenged by that kind of uh, scenario uh, because those people are the people who vote for you. And um, if they don't like something, then you won't get voted for eventually. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, a politician who is not in power is actually um, not really... It's not really worth being a politician unless you are in power. So there's 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 a there's a problem around translating this into 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 real um, real actions. Mm. Do you think there are a lot of interest, obviously, at play when policies are being made, and also a lot of communication within, or do you think that's 
still an area that needs to... Well, I, I think the formulation of policy is something that uh, there are specialists uh, in government who, who, who do that, um, but they will be led very significantly by the political leaders, the elected um, uh, members of parliament. Um, I, I, and so therefore, you know, the, 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 the kind of move to activism on the environment is very significant in that respect because they will listen to that sort of thing and they will provide instruction to those who are designing policies to design policies in ways which which are um, are moving towards that agenda. Um, however, I do see it quite often happening where ministers have a lot of ambition um, and then, then they are told by their civil servants who are designing the policy, here's your options, minister, in reality, and none of those options look very attractive at all and none of them really do the job that people want them to do. And that's not, that's not because the, the, uh, the people who are designing the policies are, uh, are particularly negative about it. In fact, many of them would be activists themselves. It's just that when you actually get down to the nitty-gritty of how do you actually make this change happen, it can be extraordinarily difficult. Um, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually um, implement it in practice. And, th and that, that's where the problem really sits. Mm. And what do you think is the role of like citizens in actually creating... Um, yeah, creating sort of a movement and creating pressure with uh, in government, but within also towns like St Andrews to create um, change. Well, uh, the citizens are right at the centre of this. I mean, we are the voters. We are the people who put politicians into power, and um, uh, you know our opinion is it, 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 it does count. Um, and you know, I I, I sometimes. Um, I have to explain to people that from my experience working in government and working with senior politicians, there are very, very few politicians around who are kind of in the Churchillian kind of mold, the, the kind of the, 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 the people who stand up and lead from the front. Um, politicians are actually on the whole, in fact, almost all of them. Um, being led. They are being led by the opinion of their constituencies. Uh, and of course, different politicians are represented by different constituencies. But those who are in really leadership roles, the Prime Minister and others, um, uh, would, would claim that they are there to lead the whole nation. Um, but actually, they are really led uh, very, very significantly by public opinion. Um, so when the public decides that it wants something done, um, it can actually, it can really can make it happen. Um, the problem with environmental uh, um, issues, however, is that while I think the public, more and more people, get it intellectually and socially, I think they have trouble uh, understanding it in practical terms. Uh, in other words, when the penny drops about yes, you know, people can say, yes, I understand climate change and I understand that we have to adapt to it. When they're actually told what the sorts of things that they may have to do in order to adapt to it, it becomes a lot less attractive. And I think that's where the problem sits at the moment. Um, in, in policy, and people like me who, who, who advise policy, we have to design things in such a way as that we, the way I put it is that we have to lay the paths where people want to walk. So you have to design those pathways that make it easy for people to adapt their ways of life and adapt behaviour in such a way that they, they're happy 
but they're also um, uh, becoming more environmentally conscious, environmentally compliant. Mm. Um, if we bring this a little bit back to St. Andrews, because I know you've obviously yeah. had a very um, long history as well with St. Andrews. Maybe mm -hmm. you can explain a bit more about as well, you know, what mm -hmm. is your, like, how come you've come back to St. Andrews again and again? And what's brought you back eventually um, to come here now after, yeah, your role? Well, I, you know, I... I um, I'm an academic fundamentally. Uh, I like to uh, think freely in an organisation where I'm allowed to think freely and I'm allowed to do the kind of things that I think are the right things to do. And an academic institution is is exactly the right place to be for that, and particularly a place like St Andrews, which has a long tradition of academic freedom. Um, uh, in addition, I'm Scottish. Uh, you know, I, I like living in Scotland. My wife likes living in Scotland. We have we lived in England for a very long time. We lived in Cambridge, actually, for a very long time. Uh, we moved back here uh, to St Andrews, and we, we enjoy it. So it's a, it's, a, it's a lifestyle issue, but it's also mm. an access to the academic environment issue. Um, and, you know, why St Andrews particularly? Well, I, th I think... Um, you know, apart from it just being serendipity that I ended up in St Andrews because they have interest in marine science and that was where I was uh, specialised. Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, as an institution, every university is different. And as an institution, uh, St Andrews has the capacity to change uh, in ways that I think that um, other larger institutions in particular might find difficult. So the kind of challenges that um, the principal has asked me to look at, I think are, um, they're difficult, they're going to be very difficult, but they're more, they're more practical and more feasible in a university like St Andrews than they are in others. And I'm very inspired by the fact that we may in St Andrews be able to lead the way on how to transform an institution into something which is much more environmentally conscious and much more environmentally aligned with the, the objectives of, let's say, net zero by 2050. Um, and that's, that's an inspiring thing to be involved with. And, um, you know, I really think it's, I think it's achievable, uh, but it will be hard work. Yeah, I, I think so too. It's, it's very exciting as well. Um, yeah, maybe you can explain how, because obviously the university had the sustainability working group beforehand, yep. but now, um, now the sustainability board is being set up and how did that sort of come to life? Um, well, I mean, it, I mean, it came to life simply because um, the, the management, uh, the principal's office of the university and the, the, the principal um, wanted it to come to life and, and so did the university court because uh, and nothing, nothing would happen unless it had their support. Mm -hmm. And that, it, it's come from them. So they've, and they've asked me if I will, uh, will lead it. Um, and, uh, you know, from my perspective, um, it's really important that the Environmental Sustainability Board is uh, composed of uh, individuals from right across the university community. Uh, it's it, because if we're going to if we're going to meet this challenge, um, we do have to transform the university, and that's that's about every part of the university. This is about system change. Um, so my first uh, response to being invited to, to 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 do this was to say, actually, this must not just be. Um, a, a group of other senior managers within the organization. This must be made up from people right across the organization. Mm -hmm. um, so 
we're trying to develop a structure that allows that to happen, allows their, you know, everybody's voice to be heard in this um, as much as we possibly can without making it completely unwieldy, mm. is the way I would put it. Um, so I think, as I said, I think it's very exciting. Yeah, I think so too. What would you say is, is the plan for it or what is its mission? So, so it, 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 it's, there are two things about that. You, you, you said its mission. Well, it's, its initial mission is really to develop uh, a sustainability strategy for the university and then to um, uh, guide the process of implementation, okay? But underline that there has to be a structure to do that. Now, the board itself will probably will only really be um, composed of, of, of eight individuals. And um, I have had lo lots and lots of experience of working on committees and boards and very big ones don't work and very small ones are, are just too small and something in between is what's required. A minimum of six, a maximum of ten and we're kind of in the, in the ballpark of eight individuals. Now, uh, those individuals will, as I said, will be taken from right across the university community. Uh, they will serve a certain amount of time and then roll off and we'll get new individuals on, so uh, so that's important. But what, what I, I want to be, be sure of is that around the board, there's, uh, uh, there's opportunities for anybody else who has interests in this area to become involved. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm seeing a, 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 a substructure to the board, like subcommittees, um, uh, that deal with things like um, you know, professional services and estates, but also research um, and teaching and, um, you know, people and community. Um, and, you know, I would hope that, uh, particularly on the people and community side, I would hope that the student's uh, body would be deeply involved in that. Uh, and of course, I, I hope that there'll be um, at least one student member on the board as well, which, uh, which uh, from my point of view, is, is really, really important. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting to see, you know, the changes happening and to know um, that we as a university have such an opportunity as well. Well, yes, I agree. And, you know, I, as, you, as I can see, you're excited. I'm excited about it. <laughs> But we have to translate that into something real. Yes. And course. that's the important yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. I, and one of, the, one of the really great things, however, and again, you asked me why St. Andrews, is that um, I think St. Andrews is um, forging ahead on this. It has already done an immense amount, uh, particularly with respect to its estate, to, uh, to, to move in the right directions, to become... Uh, carbon neutral mm. um, and uh, you know I think with the the um, the biomass plant in in uh, in garbage is a very very good example of, of that um, you know the more that we can do to uh, to to drive these structural issues forward the better but this is about actually engaging with the intellectual side uh, of the community it, through research and teaching um, to activate that to solve problems not just for the university itself but also for the wider community and the world uh, and the more we can do of that the better. Yeah I think often within sustainability within the world in general I feel like there's there's a lot of leadership lacking and I think you know if you have places to just say you know maybe someone else is not doing it yet but to just give it a go and, and yeah and yeah, have that opportunity to go ahead. But what would you say? Where do you see the university going in terms of sustainability? You mentioned carbon neutrality. 
Can you explain a bit more about that? Uh, yes. I, I mean, I think that, that in, just in terms of its kind of um, its operations and its structure, I think that the university uh, is already well on its way to um, reducing what it is capable of reducing itself to to net zero. Um, however, there is a big chunk of uh, carbon or, or emissions, let's say, or, or environmental impact that the university itself um, can't do anything about directly. And that's, that's, that's the problem of, of the embedded water, carbon, etc., in the supply chain. Um, so, you know, in the, all the food we eat, for example, but... Um, excuse me, lots of the services that we, we uh, buy in and these sorts of things. Now, I, I, you know, I think that there are things can be done around that, but one of the biggest uh, contributions the university can make to that is to, um, uh, through, through research, uh, but also through uh, uh, leadership of, of how to decarbonize its own activities, it can it can provide examples to other people, other organisations elsewhere about how they can decarbonise. Um, uh, and if we all did it together, those supply chain problems would just disappear. Um, uh, but, but nevertheless, St Andrews can get out there in front and show people how, it, how it's done. Mm. So what do you think is the biggest challenge, um, like an institution that, like St Andrews, um, in terms of sustainability, I, I mean, I think I've just I've just said what it is. Really, it's mm -hmm. that supply chain um, challenge because we don't have any control over that. Mm -hmm. um, we, we have some control in that we can go to our supply chain and we can say, well, actually, we're not going to buy from you because you haven't implemented certain uh, procedures to to reduce your environmental impact, whereas somebody else has. So we can be selective, and you know, if we're clever about it, we can join forces, let's say, with other universities, uh, both in Scotland and elsewhere, and we can um, uh, we can pressurise the supply chain to move in the right direction. Mm. Um, but you, yeah, sorry. do you not think it's more of a structural problem rather than supply? Because I feel like supply there there is options to. First, like you said, put pressure mm. on or to change, um, yeah, to change structure, to to change what supply mm. you're using and um, what options are being taken. But I think maybe looking at some of the structural things that are happening, with, uh, yeah, yeah. In so, so I, 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 absolutely, and and I don't want to suggest that we've solved those problems in any way whatsoever, um, because I think that we as individuals who are members of the university are going to have to look at um, the things that we do individually, um, but the university itself is going to have to incentivize uh, or develop incentivization to, to um, help, uh, help us through that process and itself uh, transform its structure. So, you know, the buildings they ha that the university has, uh, there's an investment program to... Uh, in them to try to uh, reduce their uh, environmental impact um, and and that is all going to have to proceed as fast as possible uh, but there are there are limits to how fast that can actually happen uh, some of them are financial limits some of them are just practical limits um, but nevertheless the, we we do need to get our own house in order that's absolutely correct and we 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 need to um, uh, do things which are, let's say, uh, ambitious. Now, I'll give you an example of that. I, I was speaking to somebody um, 
last week from actually from a Dutch bank uh, who said that um, they have a policy in the bank that uh, anybody who is traveling for a period of six hours or less cannot fly. Mm. Um, now, I, you know, I, while I don't want to uh, sort of suggest that the University of St. Andrews should necessarily be taking that up, I use that as an illustration of the kind of institutional policy that can help drive yeah. uh, changes in behavior. Um, and, I, you know, I think that the, 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 the Environmental Sustainability Board should be thinking through those options and making recommendations to the university about the kinds of things they can do to help people think more clearly about their environmental impacts. Mm. It's actually interesting you mentioned flying because I was about to mention it as well because I think in general that's a big problem and discussion around because there aren't really that many viable options in terms of actually having, I mean, the, for cars, there's something like obviously e-cars and things like that. Yeah. But for airplanes, that's not really an option yet. Uh, looking at alternatives, um, and I know that there are a lot of organizations obviously looking at, you know, ways that maybe you can reduce flights. Or mm. like you said, like the bank, um, the Dutch bank that now yeah. has, if you travel for less than six hours. Um, and I know that's what yeah, for me personally, I know that's a big choice that I'd had to like think about as well. You know, if you study in St. Andrews, you study right. an international place, you know, if of you course. study here. For me, especially if I study sustainability, um, you know, what does that mean in, in terms of my own choices? Yeah. Um, but actually, I think sometimes looking at those things rather than as a restriction, rather than looking at them as yeah. an opportunity, because I know when I did my first travel with, via train home, and yes, it's about 20, a little more, 20 hours train journey, mm, that a can time. sound a lot, but in a way, it's also, I think it's been quite exciting mm -hmm. for me as well, because you do see other um, things along the way, and yep. it opens up your mind to new opportunities as well, so instead of just seeing them as restrictions, maybe seeing them as opportunities as well. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think that's Yes, it. I agree. Um, I actually ju have just produced uh, uh, an essay about um, the ethics of flying. Um, uh, it's on my, uh, my blog site, um, and, and I've... Um, uh, which I, I tweeted a few days ago. So, you know, if anybody wants to read that, it would be great yes, to, 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 to get any feedback that people have. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think when you look at it ethically, um, you know, the ethics don't say don't fly. Mm. It, it, it's, it's, it's not unethical to fly. Uh, I think what is unethical is not thinking about what you're doing and trying to find uh, the most environmentally... Um, appropriate yeah. uh, uh, route. So, you know, for example, I work a lot in London, um, but I very rarely fly to London because mm. it's it's about half an hour difference yeah. in terms of time when you actually add it all up, um, uh, and I usually get the train. So, you know, that's a that's a choice that is built upon. Um, both knowledge of the costs and benefits in terms of the environment, but also knowledge in terms of the fact that it's a relatively small inconvenience for me. Yeah. For you, going back home to Germany, mm. um, you know, that's a big inconvenience. Uh, and there's a, there's a different cost-benefit trade-off there. So, lo so long as we're all thinking about those cost-benefit cost, cost trade-offs, I think that's the most important um, uh, thing we can do. And when we, when we do that, better and better in our everyday lives 
um, we will make a big difference. Mm. If we all did it simultaneously and made uh, better and better decisions, we're, we're very good at making decisions on cost. If we were to have the information given to us about what the environmental cost, not the financial cost, what the environmental cost of each decision we, we make might be, we could make uh, 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 better and better decisions that would cause less and less environmental damage. Mm. The trouble is that we're not given the information to be able to make that judgment and my belief is that we should be we should be given that information and one of the things I'd like the university to be doing is helping people think that through um, both by doing the research to be able to make sure that we get the information right but also by delivering that information to students and staff so that they can make their own decisions. Mm, I think information is a big issue in, in times like these especially because um, I, if you read some of the news or some of what people believe as well I think there's a lot of just a lot of information missing around, you know, yeah. what are the actual facts and the actual scientific facts. And, um, yeah, looking at these moral dilemmas, maybe you can um, tell us the name of your your blog where you can find uh, out. Well, uh, I, I'm, I tweet on uh, – I, I, the blog is on, on WordPress, and it's Ian L. Boyd, all one word. Um, and uh, my tweet is Ian L. Boyd as well. So um, you, if, if people want to, to log in, yeah. they can find find what I'm, I'm saying. It's, uh, it's, some of it's written a bit um, tongue-in-cheek, but um, uh, it, there's a serious moral uh, and ethical mes message yeah. sitting in the and middle I, of it. And I think it's really important to think about these things because, I, like, personally, I mean, I think it's important to recognize it's not necessarily about saying I will never fly again. I mean, if people do that, and if you can make the choice, I think that would that's amazing. But about making that choice to say, if it's an option, you know, why not consider it? And yes. why not have, have that, you know, at least as a, a moral option there and exactly. weigh, weigh out the cost and benefits? Pe people have to make their own decisions about these sorts yeah. of things. And as long as they know the costs and benefits, then, then they, 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 can, they can do that. Um, uh, but yes, I, I'm not in the... In, I'm not in the uh, in the space of lecturing to people about what they should and shouldn't do. Yeah. What I want to do is make sure that they have the information to be able to make rational choices. Yeah, and then I guess from a system perspective as well, if those things are encouraged, um, I think always think when you know when you think about public transport, it just needs to be more convenient and cheaper for people exactly. to use, and then it will be the logical choice to take. Yes, um, because. Yeah, I mean, in, in, especially in Europe, if you see the train network, um, it sometimes it's just it makes logically more sense actually to take the train because yeah, because of traffic, because of um, and if you add up like travel with like going to the airport and mm. going through security and on the other side, yes. it, that also adds up time wise. Exactly. That maybe if you take the train journey, just so that's kind of choice. what I've, yeah. I, I've I've kind of made that case within mm. the yeah. within the the essay I wrote, um, but yes, and and it's easy for let's say a Dutch bank, you know, based in the Hague or or Rotterdam or Amsterdam to say, well, take the train because they're right at the centre of, you know, a fantastic uh, rail network. Mm. It's much more difficult if you're kind of in a developing country where the ra ra rail and, and mm. road network are absolutely awful and um, uh, flying is about your only option. And under those circumstances, you know, it's completely understandable why people would use, use mm. flying. Um, you know, however, if, if we're then looking at investments for the future, um, you know, do you on the one hand want to invest in, 
airports or do you want to invest in in rail links or in this country high speed rail and those sorts of things and those are those are interesting dilemmas because um, we don't probably have enough money to invest in both um, uh, and and it, you know yeah. the, the think, cost yeah. benefit trade offs are quite different between the two in terms of the environment yeah I think from a political standpoint it's just it morally doesn't make sense to have airport expansion when especially a rail network could have still needs so much more work and it's just a logical option for the future as well well um, that may so. well be the case um i you know i i, I again i i i'm not into expressing um a, a you know a clear uh, yes or no option to those mm -hmm. i think we have to we have to debate what we want as a society uh and what i w would would advocate is mm. that the environmental costs associated with different options should be right up there in the front in the same way as the uh, the financial costs might be and the social costs as well. What do you think of things like carbon offsetting? So uh, carbon offsetting is uh, is certainly a way of of dealing with some of the the issues like the supply chain issues I talked about earlier on um, right now it doesn't really work very well because the carbon price is far far too low mm. uh, the carbon price needs to be probably about 10 times what it is at the moment to have a, a really significant effect. Uh, of course, with a carbon price 10 times what it is at the moment, we would see significant effects right across the whole of the supply chain, which in my view would be quite good. But one has to be very careful because that would make certain types of um, uh, goods which, which people need, uh, essential goods, um, quite expensive and there are people in society who just can't afford those sorts of things so so one has to be very careful about the social consequences of some of these sorts of things however um, uh, I think that with a carbon price which is nearer to what is needed uh, offsetting is probably um, a, a way forward um, I think it's going to be more than um, more complicated and more sophisticated than what we call offsetting. It's going to be about um, environmental bonds. Uh, it's going to be about um, developing different types of financial instruments. So an institution like the University of St Andrews or like any other institution that cannot reduce its, uh, its, its emissions um, or its environmental impacts can go to the marketplace and buy... Uh, buy into bonds or into financial instruments to be able to offset. Um, uh, that's a long way from from reality at the moment. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, you know, I, I think that if we have that kind of financial market uh, for environmental offsets within the next ten years, we'll be lucky. But we do need it, um, and we need it as fast as we can. The negative about offsets, of course, is that it doesn't inspire people to actually reduce their to environmental change, impacts. Yeah. It, 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 it lets them off the hook, in a sense. However, my, my view is that if carbon was properly priced, or whatever it is in the environment that mm. we're pricing, if it was properly priced, the cost would be such as to, as to deter people um, from, uh, from wanting to cause that damage in the first place. Um, so I think it has a double advantage in that if you 
if you find that there is no other choice, you can find a, a way of offsetting. On the other hand, uh, if you do have a choice, uh, you can just um, just not do certain things uh, rather than buy the offsets. Mm. And I think I agree that because on the one hand, it's really important to offset because if environmentally negative things are just some of them can't be completely avoided, then at least there's an option of yeah of offsetting that but then on the other hand you also need substantial change and that's i think a big thing that everyone needs to realize is that in some way all of our lives are going to have to substantially yes. change within the in the next decades um and i guess also within within how what we do at the university and the students and um yeah as individuals so i i i, I completely agree um uh, you know the kind of lifestyle I've lived through 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 my my life is 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 going to be it's going to be different for 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 people who are like yourself who are coming through university at the moment. Um, the way I like to put it is that we've been very successful over the last uh, forty fifty years, certainly since the Second World War, of building uh, a supply side economy uh, in the in that we've. Um, uh, we've ramped up uh, consumption um, to, to very high levels and consumption keeps going up and up and up. Um, all the statistics show that. Uh, what we have not been so good at doing, uh, because it's actually quite difficult, is uh, having a set of demand side policies as well. So the economy can be described in terms of the, the mm. supply of goods, but it also can be described in terms of the demand for goods. Now, what we need to do is rebalance that uh, between supply and demand. So we need to change demand and uh, and changing demand basically means changing people's behaviours mm. uh, because it's actually people who make the demands. Um, and if we can do that, uh, without um, making people feel as if they're being put upon, and that's a difficult thing, mm -hmm. um, then we will succeed. Uh, but if we don't do that, uh, I think we won't succeed um, because this isn't just about uh, you know coming up with technical fixes um, like uh, like offsets, but also like um, you know. Uh, new ways of generate, generating power, um, those sorts of things. It, it isn't, or, or new ways of of building cars and uh, you know elect, going moving to electric cars. It is not about um, those technical fixes. It's about reducing mm. the overall consumption that we yeah. have, um, because I, I can I can absolutely guarantee we could uh, solve the problem of emissions from transport. Uh, but all we'll do under those circumstances is just build more and more cars and consumption will go, just go up and up and up and the environmental effects will be felt somewhere else. Mm. Uh, so we'll have negative environmental uh, effects elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, and that's, 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 that's the story of, of the economy as it's grown for the last 50 years. That's very true. I, I I completely um, yeah follow but, you on that. So but it is, but the problem is, it's, it, demand side management is very very difficult for people because it means that people have to say, all right, I'd like that, but I can't have it, you know, yeah. and and it's extraordinarily difficult for politicians to implement something like that. I mean, it's it's a both way thing because you, it's 
it, the pre- not all of the pressure can be put on the on the consumer and on the person That's getting right. it. So you need that sort of change on on both sides. Uh, uh, yeah. So it, I mean, it's perfectly possible for governments to develop demand side policies that that ease people into a way of life which is different from the way that we have at the moment. We've done it in the past. Um, We did it with diesel cars, much to our detriment in that we made uh, diesel cheaper, just even just pennies cheaper than petrol. And what that did was drive up the purchase of diesel cars because we thought that was environmentally better because diesel is actually has a higher energy density and therefore we uh, generate less CO2 as a result of, of that. And it, it was very, very successful at shifting us from petrol to diesel cars. Um, however, we kind of forgot the, the air quality problems around that. Mm. So there's been a negative outcome and we're now moving on on from that. But but all the, all the, um, the records show that you can uh, um, gently and methodically shift people's behaviours mm. um, using some of the policy instruments and usually fiscal instruments yeah. about uh, you know, yeah. changing tax levels and that, that sort of thing. Yeah. So what I'm getting is sort of like change is possible, but it needs to, yeah, it needs to be set it, at the right place. Actually, change, change introduced at the right rate, most people won't notice it. Mm. Um, yeah. So, for example, uh, another example is that um, we now... Uh, put very little of our waste into landfill um, in the UK. And the reason we do that is that uh, around about 2000, 2001, uh, we introduced a landfill tax. Now, it was introduced at £7 a tonne, and £7 a tonne didn't make much difference, uh, but it was ramped up, um, intentionally ramped up slowly, and it's now 10 times that, and at 10 times that, £70 a tonne, people really feel the, uh, the, 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 the environment, the, sorry, the, the financial impact of putting waste into landfill and they don't do it yeah. anymore. I guess that's also the problem with carbon price because for so long it's just been exactly. set way too low. So it doesn't make the So we need to ramp needs. it up. But, I, you know, the, the, the question is how, how rapidly does one ramp it up to make people to allow people time to adapt to the changing circumstances that creates my view is that it probably needs uh, a ramp up over a roughly 15 to 20 year period Uh, but nevertheless we need to start ramping it at some point Um, at the moment it's not not ramping uh, very rapidly and then of course we're at the scientifically difficult point that we don't know of turning points within climate exactly. and ecosystem changes, yeah. Yeah. which are urging us to make changes at a lot quicker rate exactly. because a lot of things haven't changed in the past, requiring us to maybe having to change at a level that people will feel more immediately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what do you think um, in terms of maybe the next 10 years within the universe or what you would just love to see um, the university achieve in terms of sustainability? Well, I, I think um, you know. I, I think the university can make its estate um, uh, carbon neutral. Uh, uh, that's that's certainly achievable within the next ten years. Um, uh, it will need a lot of investment, but uh, I think it will it will it will achieve that. Um, I think that maybe not within the next ten years, but certainly uh, in about ten years' time or quite soon after that 
the university could probably, if it was very determined, achieve net zero emissions. Um, but that will require, um, as we've already discussed, offsetting, mm -hmm. uh, because there will be emissions that we can do very little about. You know, all the travel emissions and things like that for students uh, and staff uh, flying around the world and these sorts of things, uh, uh, much of which is absolutely necessary. Um, uh, you know, we need to find ways of of um, making sure that we uh, we offset those those emissions. Um, uh, and I, you know, I think that we need to be imaginative about how we do that. Um, uh, and I think it will take about ten years of ramping up, uh, and maybe a bit longer than that. But what I'd like to be able to um, make sure of is that in the Environmental Sustainability Board is building a strategy that has underpinning an implementation plan that maps out how long that is going to take mm -hmm. and uh, so that we can match that with the investment plans and the, any structural changes that might need to go on in the university and how the university does things um, to make it relatively easy and straightforward for, for people to adapt. Um, but as you've already said and correctly said, the sooner we get on that track, the better. Yeah, because I think sometimes I know personally, I think it's better to be a bit more ambitious because after all, if you don't set the goals high enough, the likelihood of goals sometimes being achieved um, in general is not always that, you know, not that certain. But if I think ambitions are set high enough, then I think that can almost be an inspiring point. But it has to obviously stay within within the pos within the realm of possibilities. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. You have you, you, ha you have to be practical and and it has to be achievable. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what what. Just looking at the national picture, um, you know, the climate, the Committee on Climate Change has set out the pathways to net zero by 2050 for uh, for the UK, 25 to 45 for Scotland. Um, now, you know, if when you look at that, you think, well, Committee on Climate Change has has set out this pathway; it's achievable. But actually, it's only achievable if if we put in the policies in government to make it happen um, and it also if we play our part in that in other words we as individuals but also uh, as the University of St Andrews as an institution um, and the, the, there is a big question about whether all that is going to happen simultaneously because we need to transform our domestic heating system we need to transform our transport system we need to transform our food production system and these things these transformations all have to happen simultaneously mm. uh, transformations like that have happened historically but they've usually taken 50 or 100 years to happen we need to do this in about 30 years and we've got to do them all at the same time so i completely agree with you about ambition um, uh, and, and achievability um, and practicality um, and uh, we need to we need to get on with it as quickly as possible if we're going to make that make that objective. Yes. So, what would you say for students, any list students listening in St Andrews, like or staff? How how would you suggest like getting involved in sustainability? Um, and just well, yeah, we we would like I would like to hear all their voices in certain ways. Now, you know, I could get completely swamped very quickly if I was to listen, you know, get an email from everybody. Um, I, I don't want to discourage people uh, from doing that. I, I have a Twitter uh, um, 
account. I, I'm not really very good at tweeting, but I'm, I kind of do it. Um, and uh, um, if people want to kind of respond to that, then, 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 then that's great. Uh, what I will be trying to do is communicate uh, outwards as much as possible, but also listen to what's coming back. Um, what I'd like you know, the members of the Environment Sustainability Board to be is uh, almost representatives of those different constituencies so that I, I can get feedback from them. Uh, but as I said, we will have a, a, a structure around the, the board which will allow people to engage. Uh, again, there will be li the limits to the total numbers that we can cater for uh, there. But you know, a, a lot of the solutions to this are going to come bottom up. You know, it's if you have a good idea, um, you know, we want to hear about it. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll get some resource to be able to support some of those good ideas. So, you know, we should um, uh, what I want to try to do is activate uh, the student body into self-organizing in such a way that they can bring forward their great ideas and I can find ways of, with, in consultation with the, um, uh, the, the principal's office and others in the university, uh, supporting the student body in, in implementing those great ideas. Um, we will only solve this, this global problem through really thinking hard about it and getting on and implementing some of these great ideas. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of the slogan of um, think globally, act locally. So. Yes, it, uh, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, correct. Um, yeah, just to, I know we're kind of running towards the end. Um, I didn't mention, but people could ask questions. I know we have one um, question um, in the buzz box, um, which is a little bit more related to, I think, what we said we're talking about at the beginning of the show um, with your um, work right. in environmental policy. And it's um, asking... Um, any advice for anyone wishing to get into environmental policy um, and what experience or um, skills are needed for that? Right. Well, um, the first thing I would say is, uh, you know, work hard at university, get a great first degree, uh, and then you know move on to uh, to to some form of second degree, a master's or a PhD. Um, the, I think the important thing is, is, is grounding yourself in really high quality, if you're a scientist, science, but really high quality social science or, or um, uh, academic scholarship. Um, there is nothing that really uh, replaces that. Um, and building off that is, is what you want to do. So you will, you will come to a point where you say, well, actually, I've done enough of that. I need to, uh, I need to implement the practical side of what I've learned uh, in me for me it came very late in life um, for other people it might come a lot earlier in their careers um, and you know there's nothing like you know if you're in the UK joining the civil service for example and uh, and getting having a career in there uh, to learn what it's really like on the inside uh, and actually people even at very young ages young ages can have a lot of influence in the civil service you can be given a whole area of policy responsibility um, you know there were people who were only a few years out of their master's degree who were essentially designing the um, 
uh, the, the the waste and resource policy for for England and uh, for England actually it was, um, but essentially a UK wide uh, uh, waste and resource policy, and. You know, those individuals, they're kind of nameless on the, all the documents that come out, but they have a tremendous amount of, of influence. So, so I, would, I would encourage people to look at civil service. But there are lots of other areas. And, you know, in, in commerce, um, in industry, the, every industry is going to need to do what University of St. Andrews is doing in terms of sustainability, moving in that direction. In commerce, uh, you know, I had meetings last week in the city. Uh, the, there's there's um, a lot of thought and process going on there about how to construct these um, financial instruments mm. that we're all going to need in the future. So there's there's a huge amount of practical work is needed, uh, whatever background you come from. Yeah. If you're inspired, then you'll be um, you'll find a home somewhere. And actually, what I think is really interesting in our time as well is that whatever job or whatever people are studying, I think we will all come in contact with sustainability at some point because it's just such a topic that for you know our future life on Earth, everyone will sort of in some way need to consider. So I think there are a lot of things are opening up as well. And, and it's important to engage that. And I think there's also a lot of potential within like the university to have through all our departments and through everything that is being done to have that instilled. Um, Completely that agree, yeah. Yep. Any last messages from you? Oh, I, I think my, my, my message is just watch the space. We're going to be doing some, I think, hopefully interesting things uh, and be patient uh, because we can't do everything at once. You know, we'd love to be able to do everything at once, but um, it's just going to take time to ramp all this up. Um, but... Um, uh, it's important to know that uh, the senior management of the university are completely behind this. And what I would like to know is that the students are also completely behind this mm. as well and to really capture that energy. Okay, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I hope, uh, thank you to all our listeners who've tuned in. I hope we answered some questions and concerns around what's happening at the university in terms of sustainability. Um, yeah, and I hope in the future we can have another discussion to yeah. discuss and answer any other questions and to discuss progress and what we're doing or what is being done at university in uh, terms of sustainability. Um, but yes, thank you so much for it's coming. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, yes, I um, I quickly wanted to, before I play my last song, mention that um, encourage any students that are listening also to get involved in um, in environmental societies or environmental groups in St Andrews because there's a lot of things happening um, and um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to do things. Um, so, yeah, I know, like, I quickly want to mention too, I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I mean both those societies, but um, for Amnesty, we're doing a lot in terms of um, climate events, discussion nights, um, Kenny Wind Farm, campaign um, but then also Climate Action St Andrews we're the small group that started last year um, that's organizing the student strikes but also just raising awareness um, and we're doing I think a charity bonfire event for the Australian fires next week as well um, we're quite a small group so we, we're looking for people to get involved as well to make things um, bigger and um, email us if you want to help out and take a more active role the email is stas for climate at gmail um, or also our Facebook pages um, at Climate Action St. Andrews. Um, but, yeah, thank you for everyone who's tuned in. Um, 
stay stay in contact if you want to know more there's a lot of there are a lot of things, a lot of exciting shows planned for the semester. I have someone from um, Greenpeace Canada coming next week, Friday. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned for that. And um, if you have any other questions or um, ideas for radio shows, you can also contact me. Hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. Um, and, um, yeah, thank you for tuning in. Um, be kind. 